everyone. Welcome to this week's ASF Weekly Science Podcast. I have a very special guest this week. My guest is Dr. Jonathan Sabat. He's the Chief of Molecular Genomics of Neuropsychiatric Diseases, the Baster Center for Molecular Genomics and Neuropsychiatric Diseases, and he's a professor of psychiatry and cellular and molecular medicine at UCSD. He's also been the author of many, many groundbreaking papers, understanding the genetics of autism and other neurodevelopmental disorders. There were a couple papers that came out in the last week that I thought were really interesting and I thought might kind of explain some of the questions that some people have been having and some of the concerns about what the point of genetic research is for autism. And so I formulated some questions and I'm happy that Dr. Sabad is here to answer them. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Sabad. Thanks, Alicia. It's great to be here. So the first issue I wanted to ask, or the first question isn't related to these two papers, but is related to something more in general, which is the issue of preprints. So preprints got a lot of attention during COVID because newspapers were constantly trying to stay on top of new findings related to the COVID antibody and COVID testing. And so there was a lot of information coming out at once, but they're not necessarily meant to to disseminate um, premature information. Can you explain what a preprint is and how they've influenced the field of genetics? Well, a preprint is essentially an opportunity to make your uh, scientific findings public basically immediately. Um, As soon as you can put them on paper, you can upload them to a preprint server. Um, And then you essentially you rely on the scientific community to um, to evaluate your results as they are posted and uh, and to critique them and uh, to look at them in the context of the existing literature. So it just it 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 does it's not peer reviewed. So it doesn't go through three reviewers and multiple rounds of review. So the the advantages are that the results become public immediately, um, and they take sometimes it can take sometimes years for a paper to get submitted to actually finally come out in publication. So this really accelerates science in a big way by cutting many months or even years out of the process of making your results public. So, so it's, this is a huge advantage to, uh, to speeding things up. Uh, but of course, there's, you know, there is the, the lack of peer review just means that, that scientists have to use uh, you know, their, uh, their, their own expertise to evaluate uh, the research. And it's, it's actually quite, it's not straightforward, but it's certainly feasible to read a paper and to objectively evaluate it um, as, it's, as it's published and to be able to determine how credible the results are. You don't always need to have three reviewers give it their stamp of approval. If, you have, if you're an expert in that area, you can, you can generally decide for yourself whether or not it looks credible. Um, so it's it's good to have that that uh, results out uh, to accelerate the field, and it gives more levels of review, not just the two people that were assigned to the paper, but right. probably who knows how many people that are on these preprint servers looking at your methods, looking at your data, and wondering, you know, well, could you have done it this way, or can you explain this particular statistic that you used? Yeah, the science that appears in the journal is the science that was uh, deemed publishable by two or three people, mm-hmm. as opposed to when something goes onto a preprint server, the entire field can look at it and evaluate it, and you can get you can get uh, you know critiques from m- multiple, quite quite a larger number of people. So yeah. yeah, it's a different situation. Well, let's move on to the two particular papers um, that I want to kind of. Um, highlight today. They are two of many different genetics papers, and these podcasts are going to slowly go through some of the major findings on some of them because they were they were all great. They all seem to come out almost in the, la- in the latest four or five months, um, one of which you are the senior author on, and the other one was um, uh, you weren't, but it had very consistent it wasn't done completely the same, but it had very consistent findings. And I will list the PubMed ID links in the podcast summary for anyone that wants to read them. So the first question is, the field has been fraught with debates about not if genetics contributes to autism, but I think because I think that that's been pretty well established, 
but the different types of genetics and their particular roles. Uh, we've heard things about what's called common variation and rare variation, and I'll let you uh, explain what those are in a minute. Um, 50 years ago, the whole field wasn't as sophisticated, but in the last decade or so, I think, or maybe the last five years, there's been a recognition of different types of genetic findings in autism and their relationship to autism symptoms or features. So the two I mentioned were rare variants and common variants. And I probably have explained this before on previous podcasts, but I think you can do better. What is a rare variant and what is a common variant? Well, so genetics uh, really uh, is, the goal of genetics is to find all flavors of variation that impact human traits and, uh, and uh, disease traits. And, uh, and psychiatric traits and metabolic traits and you know, heart disease and diabetes. So that's the goal of human genetics. And um, when, you, when you run genetic association studies, um, if you have the ability to run these studies across the entire genome, you would find that uh, some of the risk factors that, that contribute to a disorder may be common variants that are relatively common in the population, it might be present in 10%, 5%, or 20% of individuals in the population. And generally, those types of risk factors are uh, carry very modest levels of risk. They, so they very incrementally increase or decrease your risk of, of a diagnosis. Um, on the other end of the uh, genetic spectrum, you have rare variants, which um, can have very large effects on your risk, with, with, which can increase your risk by 10 20, 30, 40, 50 fold, uh, which is much bigger than the effects of the common variants, which might only increase your risk 1.1 fold. So they're, they're, they're very different uh, types of genetic variation. And, they, and the reason why they differ is because A, the variants themselves have very different strengths of effects on genes. The common variants have very subtle effects on genes and the rare variants have very strong damaging effects on genes. And, uh, and, and, and they have very different um, sort of evolutionary impacts and population genetic impacts as well. The common variants that have small effects are floating around in the population. They're, uh, they, become, they can increase in frequency, decrease in frequency, they can drift uh, in frequencies quite greatly. And um, the rare variants, by contrast, are almost universal, universally under strong negative selection. So uh, a damaging mutation in a really important gene, these are not variants that float around in the population. These are not variants that, um, that are contributing to um, the, well, a variant in a specific gene is not going to be contributing to um, a large proportion of common variation in the population. Generally speaking, it's a damaging mutation that is, that is essentially an evolutionary, under strong evolutionary selection. It's not going to persist in the population. It's the kind of variant that's going, to, that's going to be present for maybe one generation or two or a small numbers and will essentially, because it has such a strong negative effect, on, uh, on health, uh, it won't be around for very long in the population. So these are very different types of variation, both from a health standpoint and from a population genetic standpoint. So to give people an example of what a rare genetic variant does, um, there are syndrome, syndromes, mm -hmm. which are associated with autism and developmental disorders. And these syndromes do not just include autism or developmental disorders. They can include things like seizures, GI issues um, that can be quite debilitating. So a couple of examples of those for those of you who don't know are things like fragile X syndrome, uh, phalo McDermott syndrome, tuber sclerosis, uh, Milan syndrome, and a number of other whole yeah. syndromes caused by this rare genetic variant that can lead to a little bit of heterogeneity within that group. But a lot of times these individuals um, are on feeding tubes, they do not yeah. speak, they have the floor of cognitive ability and they will require lifelong care. Right. Um, so, um, so 
I, I want to ask this question, although I'm sure it's, it's obvious. Can someone have both common and rare variation? And are there, are they related? So like, if you have more common variations, you have less rare variation mm -hmm. or things like that. Do we know enough? What do we know now about the, the balance? And then also, um, uh, the, the, the percentage or the exclusivity of each. So the, the, genetic basis of autism in the individual in an individual on the spectrum the genetic influences that are uh, contributing to being on the spectrum is never ever one gene you might have fragile x syndrome you might have down syndrome you might have uh Tocchi-Lupski syndrome or 16p11.2 microdeletion syndrome you might have any one of those factors but is, there is not a single mutation or a single gene that explains your full psychiatric presentation, right? A single gene is going to impact the brain in a specific way. It's going to have a variety of, of clinical features that it's associated with um, in terms of neurodevelopment and behavior. And, and the same gene or, or deletion may also have other traits affecting heart disease, diabetes, uh, motor coordination. So the, the gene itself is essentially, um, you know, one factor, but what, but what really contributes to autism in an individual is really a spectrum of, of a variety of genetic factors. So in answer to your question, you may have a rare syndrome but that's, it, that's generally not uh, the end all be all of the genetic basis. In order to meet criteria for autism, you need to have the rare syndrome and you need to have other genetic factors that, that also contribute to social impairments, including common variants. So it's generally a combination of rare variants and common variants. And, and that's essentially what our paper uh, really dove into was looking at the combined effects. So if you actually, if you actually take the rare variants and the common variants together, you can really boost the, um, the uh, predictive value of, genetic, of genetics by looking at both rare variants and common variants at the same time. So that's a good segue into my next question, which is um, both of these studies took a real deep dive into the behavioral features of not just the core symptoms of autism, which is social communication impairments and restrictive and repetitive behaviors, but also it looked, they looked at intellectual ability and more broad developmental disabilities. Mm -hmm. So following up on that last question, why is it important to think about not just the core symptoms of autism, but some of these other features um, when thinking about autism and developmental disorders? Well, I mean, from the point of view of a geneticist, right? I mean, you, you study autism, you, you, you study a sample of children with autism and a sample of their typically developing siblings, and you use those two diagnostic categories simply as a means to finding the genes. But, uh, the, but the way the geneticist really views that gene is not, oh, you know, that's something that causes autism. If you, if you step back, and look at the gene in the broader population. That's how geneticists really look at, look at a gene is, is all, look at all the individuals that have that type of mutation in the population and look at the full diversity of clinical presentations that that, that gene is associated with. And what you invariably find is that an individual gene will, um, will maybe present with autism, maybe 25% of the time would a child meet criteria for autism, but, but a much larger proportion of the time, there may be types of learning disability, motor coordination problems, reading, you know, reading comprehension issues and a variety of other, uh, as well as anxiety, depression. So there's a variety of other traits that would be more strongly associated with the gene than autism per se. Um, so from a geneticist standpoint, we are really looking at the full spectrum of neurodiversity, the, of which the autism spectrum is just one little slice of the pie. So other studies have looked at rare and common genetic variation in autism and found that, and of course, these are different earlier studies, 
that certain types of genetic variants, especially the rare genetic variants, were associated with a greater chance of intellectual disability. Mm-hmm. So what were some of the key takeaways from the your study and then the warrior study, which um, looked at the type of genetic influence and then the profile of people with those different types? You mentioned, of course, that on an individual level, it's you know combinations of rare and different yeah. types of genetic variation. But when you look at the whole groups that you were looking at, was one type of genetic finding more associated with one pro- profile of autism or was it a mix of features with no specific pattern? So um, the rare variants were generally associated with more severe clinical presentations. Um, now that's, uh, I think it's, um, I think there's a point, there's a point of departure between the, the warrior study and our study in that, um, the warrior study really focused in on and emphasized um, intellectual disability as some fundamentally different subgroup of ASD. Um, but actually, when you look when you look at these different genetic factors, um, the rare variants in general are associated with more severe impairments, uh, not just on intellectual uh, impairments, but also on social impairments as well. Um, and core features of autism. So the loss of function variants, rare variants, are actually associated with more severe impairments on the core features of autism, as well as intellectual disability. So essentially, the rare variants are, are, are genetic hits that generally have stronger effects and move the needle uh, much more strongly on a variety of traits. Um, and so y- you would not, you would not, um, I think it would be foolish to conclude that rare variants per se are a subgroup of autism. To the contrary, each rare variant is a subgroup of autism. It's not that rare variants as a whole are a subgroup. Each rare syndrome is its own subgroup, right? And there are different rare syndromes can be very different subgroups. I, I can give you a great example. Um, so the nice thing about copy number variants, so these, these are, these are the kinds of rare variants where you can have a deletion of a gene, or you can actually have a duplication of a gene. They have exactly the opposite effect, extra copies, less copies. So you actually have increased, uh, gene expression or decreased gene expression, depending on whether you delete or duplicate the genes. And guess what? When you look at the clinical presentation of, of children that have the deletion, and compare it to the clinical presentation of children that have a duplication of the same genes. They both meet criteria for autism sometimes, but they are diametric opposites of each other in virtually every other way. The deletion of 16P11.2 is associated with macrocephaly, obesity, um, and a variety of other metabolic uh, disorders, whereas the duplication is actually associated with microcephaly, so reduced brain volume, and, and a lean phenotype and uh, also have very different behavioral presentations as well. So these are, these are essentially diametrically opposed subtypes of autism that are basically different mutations in the same gene. So, um, so I think it's, it's, it's a mistake to lump all rare variants together into some subtype of, of, of autism with intellectual disability. That, that completely m- misunderstands what autism is. Autism is itself a spectrum with variation along multiple dimensions. And if you push yourself really far out on one dimension, you're gonna have intellectual disability. But you may be way out on a very different dimension than another, than another subtype of autism. They are not to be lumped together. They are completely different from each other. So the idea that rare variants are in themselves a subtype, um, I think really doesn't recognize the, the nature of the genetics. The genetics is moving along a variety of different dimensions and, it, and moving to the extreme of one dimension is going to cause cognitive impairments on a more severe, a more severe form of cognitive impairment, but, but it's going to be a very different subtype. So the rare variants themselves are really good clues as to the different, the, the various different subtypes that you see um, in the autism spectrum. So along those lines, how would knowing your genetic makeup, and there's a number of different projects that that might be able to, I mean, there's projects that will give you the results if it's a rare variant, um, 
but what if you knew your genetic makeup, even if you didn't have a rare variant, mm -hmm. would that be helpful in understanding and receiving the right supports? I mean, absolutely. So like, like the geneticist's view and also a health practitioner's view would be given uh, knowledge of this genetic variant, what are the various um, uh, you know, potential health concerns that might need to be addressed in the individual as they develop from age two to three to seven to 10 to 12 to 16 onto adulthood? Uh, so from the geneticist's point of view and the, and the health practitioner's point of view, you want to be able to come up with the, the most well-informed uh, uh, you know, uh, ways of addressing uh, the, the challenges of someone with special needs. Uh, and so um, what the, the benefits that you get from that knowledge is that there can be very specific health issues like congenital heart defects, metabolic disease, diabetes, um, and, and, and the types of learning or behavioral struggles can be very characteristic of a particular rare syndrome. And imagine the difference uh, if you understood from a very early age um, that your child had a particular genetic disorder and it was going to predispose to, to um, sometimes uh, high anxiety, self-injurious behavior, and, um, and difficulties with social interaction. Imagine if you, if you could anticipate that versus just sort of putting out the fires as they, as they come along, you know, as you parent a child on the spectrum. Imagine if you had some ways of anticipating uh, the challenges that you might encounter at various ages. It makes a very, it, it, it has a, you have a very different approach. You're much more well-informed and more, and more prepared. So I think that the, um, the genetic, that's essentially what genetic testing is all about. It's all about, um, you know, coming up with the most well-informed uh, plan of care for, uh, for someone based on the, you know, the knowledge of the, of the genetics. I can provide another example, which is in family McDermott syndrome, which um, a high percentage of girls with family McDermott syndrome around the time of puberty but it ranges from you know, 16 to 25, experience neuropsychiatric regression. Mm -hmm. And family members who were having this happen in their family had no idea it was happening, no idea what to do, no clue. And clearly still, they don't have any, you know, there's, there's not a one size fits all approach to helping this, mm -hmm. but at least they can be prepared and they can know that this is, that they're part of a, larger community that is experiencing this and understand that researchers are trying to understand what's going on and then also help those individuals. So that's a, that's a really good point. That is, that's, that's what genetic testing is essentially all about. So I wanted to ask another question. We talked about cognitive ability or IQ. Gender also played a role in some of the findings and how so? what was found in female autistic people versus male autistic people um, and what was different and what was, what was not different. So there are now three papers that have really looked at this question or really, uh, or certainly our paper did and another paper by Elise Robinson mm -hmm. really looked carefully at this question of, at least, at least in much greater detail than our paper, but looked at the um, effect of sex um, and the differences in genetics by sex. It's, it's well known that, um, that, that boys receive a diagnosis of autism much more frequently than do girls. The ratio is roughly four to one, um, boys on the spectrum versus girls who meet the same criteria. Um, and then when you look at the genetics, people who receive those diagnoses look different at the genetic level. The girls who receive an autism diagnosis have a much uh, greater genetic load, both in terms of rare variants and in terms of common variants as well. So you can see that, um, that th those girls who do receive the diagnosis have a greater genetic load, which, which essentially would be correlated with more severity of autism. So it's consistent with, um, with more severe clinical presentations are required in, in girls in order to meet standard diagnostic criteria for autism. And that 
all things being equal. So uh, for, for the same given genetic load, a boy would be more severely affected on average for the, for a given genetic load and would be more likely to get the autism diagnosis. And in order for, in order to, to, to achieve the same level of severity in a girl requires a greater level of genetic load. Um, so that, that is a really, it's a really important, um, you know, clue uh, that kind of supports the idea of a female protective effect. It doesn't mean that, um, it doesn't mean that, that the same genetic, the same genetic factors don't um, influence behavior in girls. They absolutely do. But, but it, the, the current results seem to suggest that they, there are some differences in how the genes are influencing behavior between boys and girls. And they're more likely to push the boy onto the autism spectrum. And um, in terms of how they're influencing girls, I think that's still an open question. Uh, but I think it's, it, it, there is some data now, and we've looked at the effect of genes on behavior and compared boys and girls, independent of the autism diagnosis, just how do genes influence yeah. behavior? And we can see clear differences in how genes actually influence behavior in a boy compared to a girl and different, how different genetic factors do it. Some genetic factors do show a stronger effect in boys, as you would predict from this model of a female protective effect. But there are other genetic factors that look like they have stronger effects in girls, but they don't, they don't necessarily push her onto the autism spectrum, right? Yeah. So like the uh, polygenic score for educational attainment, uh, like, so the, the beneficial effects, the beneficial genetic effects that are that to these polygenic score of educational attainment that make you more likely to, um, to go to college and graduate school and all these other things. Um, in our, in our data, we could see that girls get more benefit <laughs> from those types of genetic influences. So having a high education polygenic score pushed the girls further up the ladder than the boys. So, the, so, the, so high IQ or high educational attainment had a, uh, you know, there was a more beneficial effect. Um, and the, the deleterious effects of rare variants uh, look like they have stronger effects in males compared to females. So, so it works both ways. Um, it's just how it works is, uh, it's an open question. I think we have to figure out how, what, what are the nature of these differences? And I know there's been a lot of conjecture over whether it is all genetic or all recognition and diagnosis in females, right? So you can see this conversation happening where if there's a genetic finding published, people say, well, it's not the genetics, it's all recognition. There's room for both. I mean, it doesn't have to be all or one, right? Right. Okay. Well, if you're measuring, if you're measuring the core features of autism and you can clearly see that there's a particular genetic factor that has a different effect between boys and girls on those core features of autism, then how could it not have some influence from genetics? Of course it has some influence on yeah. genetics. You can see it. You can see it very clearly that there are these differences, um, but that doesn't mean that, 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 um, that there isn't some bias to the ascertainment. There absolutely can be. Uh, these papers don't rule that out. There, there can still very easily be um, you know, systemic overdiagnosis of boys, underdiagnosis of girls, that can still exist. And that can still happen. There can be, a, you know, there, there can be kind of a self reinforcing, you know, if, if, if you define autism in boys, and define the diagnostic criteria in boys, then um, you're going to be you're going to have a male bias diagnosis. And you're going to continue to diagnose more boys than girls, so that that can still exist, right? Um, so, so, I, but but it's but it's not exclusively. It's it's absolutely not the case that it's exclusively ascertainment bias that explains it. It's um, there could very well be a combination of of, of genetic uh, difference differences in how genes influence behavior, and then on top of that, you can also add to it. Uh, uh, sort of that self-reinforcing ascertainment bias. If you suddenly decide to find your diagnostic criteria exclusively in boys, then you're just compounding the situation. So um, you can see how you could have uh, both factors could be influencing this, uh, this uh, you know, uh, propensity of boys having autism compared to girls. So changing the diagnostic criteria would, would, uh, would make a lot of sense. But the first, <laughs> but the question is, 
what are the criteria in girls? How do, what, what are they? So um, the fact that we have genetic predictors now gives us the ability to go into the general population of girls and ask the question, if you carry these genetic factors, um, how are they influencing uh, you know, presentation in girls and, and, and how does it differ from boys? And you could you know, refine diagnostic criteria based on this knowledge. So I want to turn to another uh, point that you made in your paper, which um, there was there's an exposure, which is actually just a factor that was previously thought to be all environmental, which contributed to autism risk. And this was parental age. So for people who don't know this fact, there's been multiple, multiple um, epidemiological studies that have looked at both maternal age at, at when she had her child with autism and the age of the father when that child was, was either conceived or born with autism and found that um, both maternal and paternal age, although I guess it kind of depends on the, um, the study, but they seem to both, because they are also highly correlated. There's rarely a, a Hugh Hefner situation where he has seven-year-old man has children with a 22-year-old girl, but right. they're highly correlated. But this was, and, and it seemed to be that older ages were associated with a higher risk of having a child with autism. So that was an environmental, thought to be an environmental factor. But you looked more deeply about that question. Mm -hmm. um, so what did you find? Where could, were you able to identify where that increased likelihood of having a child with autism, where that was coming from? Well, we looked at the behavioral correlates of genetic factors across the whole family. We looked at the children on the spectrum. We looked at the typically developing siblings and we looked at the parents. And one of the, one of the traits in the parents was the age at which they had their child with ASD. So when we looked at that, um, we could see that, of course, what we already knew based on our 2000, based on our 2012 paper um, that showed a correlation of mutation rates um, and father's age. So, so based, on based on the 2012 papers from our group and from DECODE, uh, we, we've already known for a while now that older fathers have more mutations, de novo mutations in their children. And it increases linearly with age. So the, the child of a father in their 20s will have on average 40 or 50 de novo mutations. A child of a father in their late 50s, early 60s will have 70 or 80 de novo mutations. And that's so that's and that will in, that will linearly increase the number of de novo mutations and the number of disease causing de novo mutations in their children. So you expect risk to increase as the mutation rate goes up. And that's something we already knew, but guess what? The de novo mutations are just one flavor of variation. You also have the polygenic risk. You also have rare variants that are inherited from mom and dad. And when we look at all of these, every single genetic factor that we looked at correlated with the age of the parents and had a significant difference in, in sex. So some were correlated with mom's age and some were correlated more strongly with dad's age. So essentially every single genetic factor we looked at correlated with age in some way, but it was very different depending on what it was. So um, we looked at, did it have to do with the effect on social behavior in parents? So we actually had the, the broad autism phenotype questionnaire, which allowed us to look at, you know, whether are there social impairments in mom? Are there social impairments in dad? And when we looked at that question, Quite surprisingly, the social impairments did not correlate with being an older parent. To the contrary, it was the opposite. So the parents that had the, the genetic factors that had stronger effects on social impairments in the parents tended to contribute to earlier parenthood. So they were younger. Hmm. So the, the parents that had more, so, that had more um, uh, genetic uh, effects on behavior tended to be younger on average, not older. Um, and when we looked at that question, we were like, what is going on? And we, we flipped it around and we looked at the education of the parent. We said, okay, let's look, let's look at the educational attainment of the parents in relationship to these genetic factors. And then suddenly it lined up perfectly. The, the effect of the gene or the genetic factor on the education of the parent was what predicted age. So uh, genetic factors that were associated with high, high levels of education tended to be associated with older parents. 
and, um, and genetic factors that tended to contribute to cognitive impairment and, and, uh, and less education were associated with younger parents. So, so it, it, we showed that it was the effect of the gene on mom and dad's education that determined their, um, their age. And that's how it works. So, and so you actually have, so you have some genetic factors that contribute to cognitive impairments and it was a stronger effect in dads. So the things that had a negative effect and caused cognitive impairment were stronger in dads and you were you tended to have younger uh, younger dads uh, in that group, and then you also have polygenic scores that contributed to high education, and those were associated with older parents and really much stronger in moms. So so having more education contributed much more to being an older mother than older father, and that's that's that. And when we looked at the phenotype data, that was also very clear that the more educated moms um, had a bigger effect on when they had children than the dads. So dads that were more educated did not tend, did not drift as far into the older spectrum as the moms. And moms that are more educated has a bigger effect on, on when they have children. <laughs> Unsurprisingly. If we lived in a society <laughs> where, where women could have children at any stage in their education and it wouldn't interrupt their education or their career, then we probably wouldn't see this effect. But in yeah. the society that we live in, where, where there's a real effect uh, when a woman's education or her career has a real effect or, or having kids has a real effect on education and career, um, then you see this effect. So this is, this is really a, a, a gene environment interaction in many ways that, that, that explains this big sex difference in, in uh, genetic correlation with, with age. But that's basically been, every genetic factor, every genetic factor that impacts, uh, uh, you know, education, learning, and education in some way, ends up correlating with mom and dad's age. Yeah, this has been a huge question, and people have gotten really angry. People who had kids, you know, younger, and their kids still had autism, get really angry when you talk about this. And then you have people like me who this fits to a complete T. So um, not that this is just the, the one thing at all, but um, it's, it's interesting to hear how this is all playing out because this was a pretty controversial finding when the first study came out many years ago. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, we talked about polygenic risk score and uh, rare variants and how there's some profile, but of course people across the spectrum are, are, are have these different features and um, there, it's not a complete grouping. Um, so I will say that when the community with autism who identifies as neurodiverse hears about genetic research, the reaction is usually a fear that whatever genetic finding is present will lead parents to either decide not to have children if it's a prenatal, if it's, it's in the parents, or it will lead to the parents deciding to abort a fetus if they find out that there is a gene in that fetus associated with autism. So um, I want you to comment on that. But first, I want to say my own opinion is that I completely realize that the reasons for Roe v. Wade being overturned are more complex than this. But certainly the message of eugenics of the disability community and fear of being wiped out was used by many pro-life advocates who moved towards um, eliminating Roe v. Wade. So I wanted to kind of, you, you don't have to agree or disagree with that, that's my own opinion. But, um, you know, is it even possible to make a decision about your pregnancy when common variation is involved and when you know the genetics? Oh, before we get into common variation, we just need to talk about what what is the goal? What are the goals of genetic testing, and how does it work? Because I think, I think that the public probably doesn't have the full view. Like some some people who had kids have been through, uh, you know, have maybe been offered uh, a um, genetic testing uh, prenatal may have been offered prenatal genetic testing, and those people would might know, you know, one of the reasons why you would have prenatal genetic testing, but they don't understand the full, the full gamut of it. So let me, let me explain. Okay. Um, so first of all, there's, there's clinical, first of all, there's research, there's clinical genetic testing, like we discussed, uh, you know, how you can provide some benefit to a family that has a kid with special needs and the clinical genetics is used to inform the treatment 
of a kid. That's clinical genetics. There's the research, which is just trying to understand how do genes influence brain development and how do they actually affect uh, behavior. And then there's the prenatal testing, which is completely different from the, which are completely separate from the other things. And, and, and so the, the research does, does not automatically translate into prenatal genetic testing. That's, that's not how it works. The research is, is unearthing the findings about how genes contribute uh, to, to a trait. And, and prenatal genetic testing and the ethics of prenatal genetic testing are handled in the prenatal clinic. And right now, there are really two indications for prenatal testing. Either A, uh, when a woman is over 40 years of age, she may have a higher risk of having a child with Down syndrome. And, it's, and women are given the option to test for Down syndrome prenatally. Um, and it's really when, when the risk of that starts to increase with mother's age. That's one indication of prenatal genetic testing. And there's basically one other indication. And that's when fetal anomalies have already been identified from ultrasound. So I don't think that the public understands what prenatal testing is all about. Right now, prenatal testing is look for Down syndrome if mom is 50 years old. And ooh, we have, we have fetal anomalies. We have evidence of a heart defect or an abnormally developing brain in the fetus that have already been identified from ultrasound. And the genetic testing is done as a companion to that in order to have a better, better information about what is going on with this pregnancy. That's what prenatal testing is about. There's, no, there's not currently anyone in the field who's advocating taking the research genetics, all of the exome sequencing findings and copy number variant findings that are coming out of, out of research, um, and just and then just immediately throwing them into the prenatal clinic. That's not what that's not what's being done. I mean, pre, there is no pre, there are no prenatal exomes right now, hardly at all. I think uh, that's the fear. So, I just wanted right. to kind of address that. Because so, so let's be let's be clear. Up. So that the but I mean the, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that there aren't valid concerns. Absolutely. So the um, so uh, the the members of the community who would be concerned about. Um, about abuse of the information. I think those are legitimate concerns. I just think that I think that the um, that the the you know how the research translates into prenatal testing is is misunderstood. So that's that's helpful. But but the the potential concerns are that um, that essentially if you had a if you had a genetic test for autism. If you had a genetic test that can predict autism, then individuals are going to choose to either prenatally or more likely pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So IVF mm -hmm. to use it. So I, so it's again, the, the likelihood of this being done on a large scale um, with prenatal testing, it just doesn't seem, that doesn't seem as likely the bigger concern about eugenics is when you start using genetic testing and selecting embryos for implantation with IVF. That's a bigger, I think that's, a, that's actually the more significant um, ethical concern there because then you have the potential to, um, to choose any variety of different genetic predictors of traits and choose, and you choose from five or six embryos, which one looks the best, right? Yeah. <laughs> from a series of genetic scores. And I think that's a more, that's a, that's a much more real and, uh, and present ethical concern. Uh, so the prenatal, again, the prenatal testing, um, that's really where the ethics are handled uh, in the, on the clinical side and, and the indications are not autism. Um, and then, uh, and also there is no genetic test for autism, by the way. As you recall from earlier in the interview, there is no genetic test for autism. The genes that we have are, are genetic predictors of specific uh, genetic disorders, right? Um, of which there might be a 10, 20% of individuals with that genetic disorder that meet criteria for autism. It's not the autism that, that the genetic uh, test is looking for. The genetic test is looking for that specific uh, syndrome. And, uh, and as, as you, 
as I mentioned earlier, these are not these are these are these are syndromes that are quite severe, um, debilitating, often life threatening. A, a severe epileptic encephalopathy is a life threatening disorder, um, and so you're you're by you know you're what the genetic testing does in those in those uh, situations is if you have that in the family. Imagine you had a recessive. Imagine that you had a recessive disorder. And the um, and the oldest child um, developed a severe epileptic encephalopathy regression and died at age eight. Now the family has a choice: do they want to go through that again? And that's an ethical situation that um, that's between the family mm -hmm. and their doctor. Um, and the genetics information is there. Um, to assist with that, with those decisions, but it's, it's not geneticists that are advocating for, um, for eugenics. That's yeah. not, that's not what's happening here. You're, you're, you're basically, you have, you have genetic tests that are generally designed for, um, you know, improving care. And then in a small subset of syndromes that are extremely severe and have very debilitating effects on the individual and on the family, um, in those, in those cases you offer the, and, and also there are variants that are not floating around in the population. So you're not shaping the genetics of the population mm -hmm. by offering a family, um, genetic testing. Uh, so, uh, so it's, it's very different from eugenics. Yeah. And I, I guess what I was getting to is with this combination of rare and common variants and the common variants can yeah. be so diverse Will there ever, I mean, right. outside of those, with the common variants, right. is it that even going to be possible? So genetic testing, genetic testing um, in general right now is almost exclusively rare variants because the, the rare variants have, have, the rare variants have much, much uh, stronger clinical predictive value that the, the, uh, their correlation with, with severe clinical presentations is very strong. And so they're used in the clinic. Um, uh, currently common variants are not. Uh, mm -hmm. Because both both individually and um, and as a polygenic score, when you sum all of the variants genome wide, um, they don't have the same predictive value. So um, so they're 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 not going to be very predictive of an autism diagnosis. They're not going to be able, they're not going to predict a genetic disorder either. So they don't have the same they don't have the same yeah. clinical value uh, that the rare variants have. And so you're you're not currently going to see common variants on their own being used to, to, to diagnose genetic disorders. They're just not. Yeah. Um, okay. But yeah, what they can be, what clear. they can be done, what they can be used for is for, for example, potentially in combination with the rare variants. So if you have a deletion of, uh, of chromosome 22, uh, at position 22 Q 11, uh, that deletion might increase your risk of schizophrenia significantly, as well as it'd be associated with intellectual disability and heart defects and other issues. But it also increases your risk of schizophrenia, but maybe only 25% of cases um, meet criteria for schizophrenia later in life. But guess what? If you have a polygenic score that can be used in combination with that deletion, um, the current research is showing that you can potentially increase the, it's, not, it's no longer 25%. For someone that has a high polygenic score for schizophrenia, the risk of schizophrenia might be 60% in, in the individual that has that genetic disorder. So the ability to, um, to identify potential mental health problems in individual that has a known genetic disorder, I think that the combat combination of rare variants and common variants could be could be useful. And again, this is used in the, in the context of clinical management yeah. of, of, of someone with a genetic disorder. Now go, going into there's prenatal genetic testing. I mean, uh, sorry, it, you're not at this point, you care about the genetic disorder. Mm -hmm. you, you do not, you're not, you're not really diagnosing autism, schizophrenia, uh, coronary artery disease. You're not trying to diagnose those things. Prenatally, which is what the common variants might help you, uh, you know, it might help you kind of uh, determine the probability of one or the other. But that's yeah. really not how clinical genetic testing is used. And in terms of, uh, again, the real concern, as I keep coming back to, with 
um, you know, unethical use of genetic testing is with um, in vitro fertilization and the selection of embryos, which is always done. So, so anytime you go yeah. undergo, un, anytime you undergo IVF, um, you, you have to select from a pool of embryos, which ones to implant. And they take the ones that are not growing properly and they don't implant those. And they, and they also use, um, they can also use uh, 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 cytogenetics to find ones that have abnormal chromosomes. And so you don't implant the embryos that have abnormal chromosomes. Why would you? <laughs> so well, they uh, also also <laughs> in those processes right. can look at the structure of the membrane. I know a lot about this. Right. The structure of the membrane and the expression right. of adhesion exactly. factors. Right. Because those are the ones that are most likely to implant. So yes, that's right. being being done, but for right. reasons of having a successful pregnancy. So IVF, I mean, just by virtue of having IVF, you have to select embryos. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the question is, what is what is the role of genetics in selecting the embryos? And that's an that's a real ethical dilemma because there are, I mean, there are uh, uh, startups out there that are that are making progress in being a, in being able to assign genetic predictions um, that are that are clinically meaningful in at least on a population level where, okay, if you take coronary artery disease, heart disease, um, and diabetes, and you take the, the, the genetic predictors of all of these and you sum them all together and you assign, you know, to individuals in the population, this, um, this score, um, and then ask how many of them actually develop these severe disorders, people with a high score versus a low score. Um, it's a, there's a meaningful difference when you compare the high score to the low score. And so there, there is very much the possibility of, of selecting embryos that have a lowered probability of heart disease, diabetes, um, and will live longer. There is very, there's a very real possibility that, that, um, that some of the startups will have meaningful genetic predictors that will allow you to select an embryo that will live longer. So, um, how does the, how does this, and, and so that's an ethical dilemma that I think that the community has to come, come together on and, uh, and discuss. And it's, I don't think there's a clear answer right now about, um, about what is the right way, right way to move forward with those. So the, here's the, when you're talking about psychiatric traits, I think it gets much, it gets much thornier because there's this thing we call pleiotropy. Mm -hmm where an individual gene, like I said, can affect the heart and it can also affect the brain and it can also affect uh, your, your um, you know, body mass index and other factors. And if you, and, and genetic factors that increase your risk of autism might decrease your risk of schizophrenia. There's actually, there actually are genetic factors that do this. So uh, there, there are copy number variants that increase your risk of autism, but actually decrease your risk of schizophrenia. And so when you have this kind of, uh, this kind of many different outcomes, depending on how you, you select the genetics, um, it, does make the, it does make the genetics a lot thornier. And, and obviously the ethics has to be, not just the ethics, but just the science has to be examined much more carefully. What are the real consequences? If you select for a high genetic score on this factor, or if you select for this rare variant, um, you're gonna, you know, what, uh, what, um, you know, disorder risks are gonna go down, and are there any disorder risks that will go up? And you have to look at all of these factors just scientifically, just to understand what are the potential consequences of even doing this in the first place. And then, secondly, there's the, the there are entirely separate ethical considerations that have to be done as well. And the scientific community is is in very active, rigorous debate about all of these factors. This, this is not something that, um, that any of us want to go hastily into the clinic with. That's, I mean, that's certainly the researchers don't. The researchers are not, um, are not moving this into the clinic. The researchers are really there to try to understand the genetics a lot better. And also we could potentially provide the information on what are the, what are the um, you know, what are the negative consequences of, of selecting uh, on a particular genetic predictor. And that's, those are the kinds of research that has to be done. Yeah, as you were talking about that, I was reminded of an NIH um, 
webinar that's going to happen this fall, or it's a it's a meeting that will be taking place over the internet. Um, and I will also include that in the, uh, I, I, I remembered it, but then I don't really know much about it. So I'm going to uh, find it and put it in the podcast summary. So if people want to go, they can, they can go. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything else you wanted to add about this topic? Not specifically about eugenics, but no. maybe about, you know, differences, behavioral well, I think, differences. Um... Well, I, I mean, we're, 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 we're speaking in the context of, uh, of an autism foundation and, and the, and the, mm -hmm. and the, and the struggles of families that have a child on the autism spectrum. Um, and I just, I, I can't really emphasize enough what a geneticist's perspective is when you come into this, because you're, you're thinking about it first and foremost, from the point of view of a gene and the effect of that gene on the development of the brain and and behavior uh, subsequent to that. And when you look at things from that perspective, the diversity of, of cognitive function and behavior and clinical presentations becomes very broad. So um, in, terms of the in terms of the spectrum itself, there is, there, there is a broad spectrum along many dimensions. Mm -hmm. So the true the true psychiatric spectrum is actually a very is a very broad and diverse universe of which you know we're measuring how genes move the needle along all of these different dimensions, um, and that's really the goal of psychiatric genetics and and genetics in general is to really kind of understand how it works um, because if we're really just if we're really just looking at cases and controls. Mm -hmm. and variants that are more common in A versus B, we're not really gaining a huge, you know, advance in our understanding. We're basically just coming up with lists of genes. And I think that the, com I think that the scientific community uh, also, to some extent, um, kind of views genetics as basically just that, generating lists of genes, as if, as if the, 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 the goal of genetics is just to, is to find all the SNPs and pinpoint all plant, plant little flags around the genome that here are all the genes. And, and that's the end of the story. That's not what genetics, that's, that's, that's just the beginning of genetics, right? The planting the flags is just telling us where the genes are. And what genetics is really trying to do from, from that point forward is trying to be able to take, okay, I have the whole genome sequence on 10,000 people and I can look individually at an individual gene and figure out what traits that one gene is influencing. It might be influencing behavior and it might be influencing uh, growth and metabolism. And it might, be it might be influencing the development of the heart. And, and now taking that knowledge that you can get from information on one gene and now figuring out how to combine all that information across the entire genome in order to correlate these things with health and with specific traits. And also trying to figure out um, when you have all these different, when you have A and B in combination, um, ultimately, you know, it's, it's gonna help you define the autism spectrum, the, the, all the subtypes. So def define the many different subtypes of autism and what is the difference between this group and this group? And they may be fundamentally different and you need to understand that and, and understand the biology Understand, understand the clinical presentation and how these different things present differently in the clinic and also understand the differences in biology as well that explains those, those differences. And I think, I think that if the public and our own colleagues in the field <laughs> recognize that that's what geneticists are doing, um, they wouldn't have such an oversimplified uh, kind of primitive view of, of, of what the geneticists are, are currently doing and finding and, and, it's, and it's actual importance uh, sort of like and advancing our understanding of disease. There's a lot, there's a lot more you can do with genetics than just uh, come up with a list of genes. Yeah. Well, thank you um, for this interview. It's been really interesting. I'm gonna lift some of your quotes for it when we publicize it. Um, thank you again for all of the work that you do in genetics and for so helpfully explaining this to us. Well, thanks for having me, Alicia. It was a lot of fun. I'm getting tired of starting.
Were you born 